Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you're here, I hope. Amen? You're glad you're here? (laughs) We're in a study on um, the family, the modern family, and over the past weeks, we have looked at this passage from Ephesians chapter 3, which says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. We've looked at some truths over the last four or five weeks about family. Uh, We looked at the truth that we can either trust God and his word and his spirit, or our own conscience and our, our own experience, let those be our guide, or let God be our guide, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we're to follow God, his word, and his spirit. That gender was created by God uh, with distinct purposes, plans. Sin has distorted what God has created. And that we all struggle with gender and who we are and what God has created us to be in some way or another. That marriage was created by God to be between a man and a woman. That sex was created for marriage. These are premises we've looked at over the last four or five weeks. And now I want to keep pressing forward to look at some distinct purposes and plans over the next couple of weeks as we close out this series about marriage, relationship, where we are as a society. Uh, I, I, I have a confession. I, I love Chick-fil-A. I love I, you know it's uh, I, I love Chick Fil A before they had the standalone places. Some of you remember when you actually had to go to the mall to buy Chick Fil A. It really was the only reason I would go to the mall was to to buy Chick Fil A. Um, there are many reasons that I, I love Chick Fil A besides the fact that uh, I just like the food. Um, I never get tired of it for some reason. It's always the same. Or, or the same, you know, bread, chicken sandwich, waffle fries, lemonade. Every time. Same thing. I love it every time. And we have people from our church. Now, you can't, the one thing about Chick-fil-A, you can't go get it today. Huh? Amen? So we support them for that reason as well. But we got a lot of people from our church who work for Chick-fil-A. I go into Chick-fil-A, I order, and the 16-year-old behind the counter always says to me, It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And I sometimes want to say to them, really? (laughs) Really, are you finding meaning and satisfaction in your life, joy in your life by giving me my sandwich and waffle fries and lemonade? Is this what, are you finding pleasure in this? Now, I appreciate the phrase, it's my pleasure. And I understand that really what the phrase is implying is, it's really a symbol of humility. Uh, It's my pleasure to serve you. In an essence, it's not about the joy I get from handing you a chicken sandwich. It's about what does it mean to serve other people and how we are to find pleasure and joy and satisfaction in service. Today, I want to talk to us all about pleasure and happiness because it is so much in, um, I can't get this off, guys. For some reason, I'm frozen. I mean, I like it, but it's making me hungry. 
Yeah, there. <laughs> so, um, we may have to reset that thing before we go further. You got a little time. Um, anyway, today I want to talk to us about pleasure and happiness and what brings us satisfaction. And we hear much about it in our society, and the discussion goes something like this This particular thing makes me happy. Whatever it might be, it brings me pleasure to do this. Therefore, that's the way God created me. He created me to get pleasure out of this. God wants me to be happy. Therefore, I'm going to do this thing. I mean, the the argument and the logic of it may go in various different ways, but it goes something like that where this, this makes me happy because this is the way God made me. Therefore, God wants me to be happy, I'm going to do this, whatever the case may be. So I want to look at uh, the idea of pleasure. Now, honestly, the church has not done a very good job in addressing the whole concept of pleasure. Many times we've painted the picture that if, if anything brings us pleasure, God must be against it. That pleasure is a bad thing, we should avoid all pleasure, that pleasure is an evil an evil thing. My daughter is reading uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Olivia's reading To Kill a Mockingbird for class right now. I know all you high school students suddenly shuddered because you're probably reading it, as, reading it as well. It's one of my favorite books of all time, uh, the language, the dialogue, the pictures that it paints. There's this one scene between uh, Scout, who is the young girl in the book, if you remember, and Miss Maudie, who is her neighbor from across the street. Miss Maudie is actually the one who quotes the famous line, that's why it's a sin to kill a mockingbird, from which the title of the book uh, is derived. But in this particular discussion, Miss Maudie and Scout are talking about Baptists. And they're talking about the distinction between Baptist. Miss Maudie is saying that she is a regular Baptist versus the foot-washing Baptists. Uh, the foot-washing Baptists are the primitive Baptists in their town, but they're just called foot-washers. Now, my, great, my grandmother was a primitive Baptist, so I don't want to speak too poorly of primitive Baptists as if regular Baptists or spirit-filled Baptists are much more advanced. But in the book, in the book, Ms. Maudie says something like this, foot-washers believe anything that's pleasure is a sin. Did you know some of them came out of the woods one Saturday and passed by this place and told me, me and my flowers were going to hell? Scout replies, you're flowers too? (laughs) Miss Maudie says, yes, ma'am. They burn right with me. They thought I spent too much time in God's outdoors and not enough time inside the house reading the Bible. Scout says, That ain't right, Miss Maudie. You're the best lady I know. Miss Maudie responds, thank you, ma'am. Thing is, foot washers think women are a sin by definition. I just threw that last line in because I thought it was funny the way she worded it. But anything that's pleasure is a sin. Anything that's pleasure is a sin. Many of us at times look at this concept of pleasure and think, if it is pleasurable, it must be a sin. And I would like for us to 
address that as well as how do we bring the discussion about pleasure into balance in our lives. The first point is this, is God is the creator of pleasure. God is the creator of pleasure. It says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. We have a different passage up there. I'm going to get to that one in just a second. If God created all things, and all things were created by him and for him, stay with me just for a second. If everything was created by him and for him, that accompli- that, what does that include? It includes all things, right? All things were created by him and for him. And I would contend that this includes the whole concept and truth about pleasure. It was created by him and for him. Look at some of these different passages, beginning with Colossians 1.19, that talk about pleasure and how God receives pleasure. It says in Colossians 1.19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Who's the in him it's referring to here? It's referring to Christ. God found pleasure by putting his fullness in Christ. By the way, when God created the heavens and the earth, what did he say? It's good. He found pleasure in what he had made. God is the creator of pleasure. Luke 12, 32, Jesus says this. <laughs> I will get there. Luke 12, 32 says, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God finds pleasure in giving us his kingdom plans and purposes. Philippians 2, 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for what purpose? For his good pleasure. God finds pleasure by working in and through us. And finally, there are a lot of other passages. I'm just giving you a taste of some of them. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Here's the point I want us to see, is that God is the creator of pleasure. If he finds pleasure in stuff, he is instilled in us, created in his image, to find pleasure as well. One of my favorite old authors from 100 years ago is G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was a kind of predecessor of C.S. Lewis, and in his book, Orthodoxy, there's an introduction to it by Philip Yancey. Uh, It's been reissued. Philip Yancey writes the introduction to Orthodoxy and talks about some of the things he learned in the book. And he talks about, Yancey does, the problem with pleasure. Not the problem with pain, but the problem with pleasure. And their argument that Yancey picks up on, I'm going to show you his quote in just a minute, that Chesterton says is this. Many people struggle with why is there evil and suffering in the world. And they use the argument about evil and suffering to say there must not be a God or there would be no evil and suffering. 
Chesterton flips the argument and says, here's what an atheist has to say. If there is no God, why is there pleasure in the world? In other words, he says pleasure, pleasure is proof to him that there is a God. And here's how Yancey puts it. He says it like this. Why is sex fun? Reproduction surely does not require pleasure. Some animals simply split in half to reproduce. And even humans use, use methods of artificial insemination that involve no pleasure. Why is eating enjoyable? Plants and lower animals manage to obtain their quota of nutrients without the luxury of taste buds. Why are there colors? Some people get along fine without the ability to detect color. Why complicate vision for the rest of us? He goes on to indicate that pleasure is given to us by God. It's within his created plans and purposes that we should enjoy. Why does food taste good? We could have food without it tasting good. We could just eat and have to. But God has made it in such a way that we enjoy. In his book, C.S. Lewis um, talks about in the screw tape letters, and I know for some of you, you always get screw tape letters all mixed up because it's kind of confusing the way it's worded. Screw tape simply is, an, uh, 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 there's a demon who is writing to a younger demon, so to speak, that he's mentoring. And he's trying to tell this younger demon how he can trip people up. How can he cause confusion in the world, especially among believers? And here's what the older demon says to the younger demon. Never forget. Let me see if I've got it up here. There it is. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. And he means by the enemy, God's territory. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All pleasure, I believe, finds its origination in God who created it. So if pleasure is good, what's the problem? Second point is this, living without faith distorts pleasure. Living without faith is, distorts pleasure. So if the problem is not with pleasure, what is the problem? Well, the problem is with sin and its work within us. When we find meaning out of pleasure, rather than using pleasure to point us toward meaning, we lose the, the purpose of it all. Researchers, there's a researcher at Emory University by the name of Gregory Burns who does a lot of research on what brings us pleasure. Do you know what the top three items, whenever he does research all over the country, to the top three items that bring us pleasure, or at least people say bring them pleasure? You could write them down, you could guess. Food, sex. Anybody know the third one? No, sleep. Sleep. Food, sex, sleep bring us pleasure. I asked this in my house last night. First answer right out of the bat, winning. Winning brings me pleasure. (laughs) Welcome to the Brookings household. Yes, winning brings us pleasure. 
The problem is not with food or sex or sleep. They're all, I mean, essential items really for life, for sustainability, for us moving forward. The problem is when we get those out of order. Love of food becomes gluttony. Love of sex becomes lust. Love of sleep becomes sloth. I mean, once they're out of balance, in balance, in faith, all of these items work well. But outside God's plans and his purposes, they become the driving force in many of our lives. In his book, How Pleasure Works, Paul Bloom says that pleasure is tied. Now listen to this. This is, not, this is a secular book, not a, a Christian book, so to speak. But he says that pleasure is tied to our beliefs about what real essence is. In other words, if we're not careful, we find meaning in our pleasures rather than letting our meaning define our pleasures. And this is, in essence, the definition of sin, putting faith in something other than God. Pleasures, when they become our source for meaning, can become easily fooled. Scientists at Stanford and Caltech just did a a research project about two years ago in which they took a large group of people and they divided them in two and they gave them both the exact same wine. To one half of the group, they said, this is just, this is a cheap wine. What do you think about it? We're testing it out. To the other group who's getting the exact same wine, they gave, they told them, this is a $150 bottle of wine a very exclusive wine. And they wired both uh, test groups' brains to test what the response was. The people who were told it was a $150 bottle of wine, the part of their brain that signals pleasure lit up like a Christmas tree. Suddenly, they're finding pleasure in something because they're told. We are easily, easily fooled. I know you've seen this this week. But what color is this dress? Some of you don't get on the internet. I'm sitting in my house on Don't Say Anything. I'm sitting in my house on Thursday evening. Annalise comes in in a panic, hands me and her mom her phone, and says, what color is this dress? I say, it's obviously white and gold. I mean, it's white and gold. And she says to me, it is not white and gold. It is obviously black and blue. I thought she was lying to me. I mean, really, I'm sitting here saying, what? You think this is black and blue? And she said, no, the computer's going to go crazy. That's what she said to me. It's white and gold to me. I still see it as white and gold. I look at it now, it still looks white and gold. To some of you, you're like, what? I don't see white and gold. I see black and blue. It's a unique phenomenon that occurs. There's some sort of thing in, the, these, in, our, in our retina at the back of our eye that distinguishes color and then signals it to our brain and tells us how to interpret what we see. We are very unique. Some of you are like, I just don't see the white and gold. Others of you are like, I, how could it possibly be black and, black and blue? Well, I've got a picture of the Pope in his new black and blue outfit. (laughs) So you can see what it looks like on, on him. The point is this. The point is this. We are very unique 
in the way we distinguish things and the way we look at things and what, in fact, brings us pleasure. God has created us distinctly unique. I mean, think about this. Why do things that cause us pain or suffering or sadness or sorrow bring us pleasure? Why eat chili peppers? Why, why that, that pain? Why go to a horror movie? Why go to a sad movie that's going to make you cry and then you'd leave? Oh, it's just so good. Why listen to sad songs? In some way, they bring us pleasure. Bloom identifies this, by the way, as a benign masochism. Like we like to push the boundary to, to, to something that causes us pain because it, in fact, in some way, brings us pleasure. Roller coasters and jumping off things and climbing things brings pleasure. But we're unique in that for each of us, what brings us pleasure may be very different. The problem is when seeking pleasure becomes our reason for being. Pleasure, apart from God, does not produce meaning. Let me say that again because this is really important. Pleasure, apart from God, does not produce meaning. Again, the greatest biblical example I know of this is Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Solomon, I've preached this passage before, but let me just highlight it again. Solomon, of all the people who have ever lived, was uniquely positioned to seek after meaning through the pursuit of pleasure one of the richest, smartest, most powerful men who ever lived. And he says, I am going to give myself fully and 100% to the pursuit of pleasure to see what kind of meaning it will bring me. And in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11, Solomon says this, Then I said to myself, let's go for it. Experiment with pleasure. Have a good time. But there was nothing to it, nothing but smoke. What do I think of the fun-filled life? Insane, inane. My verdict on the pursuit of happiness, who needs it? And then he talks about how he went after it. With the help of a bottle of wine and all the wisdom I could muster, I tried my level best to penetrate the absurdity of life. I wanted to get a handle on anything useful we mortals might do during the years we spend on this earth. Oh, and I did great things. Built houses, planted vineyards, designed gardens and parks, planted a variety of fruit trees in them, made pools of water to irrigate the groves of trees. I bought slaves, male and female, who had children, giving me even more slaves. Then I acquired large herds and flocks, larger than any before me in Jerusalem. I piled up silver and gold, loot from kings and kingdoms. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song and most exquisite of all pleasures, voluptuous maidens for my bed. Oh, how I prospered. I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind, left them behind in the dust. What's more, I kept a clear head through it all. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held back nothing. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself 
for a hard day's work. Then I took a look a good look at everything I'd done, looked at all the sweat and hard work, but when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke, smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it, nothing. Wisdom, food, wine, possessions, entertainment, prestige, public works, making a name for himself, sex, none of it brought meaning. He doesn't condemn these things as bad, just as inadequate, that they are not going to ultimately fulfill you and bring meaning to your life. The reason and the problem is that we put faith in the attainment of pleasures rather than faith in God. It's about priority, because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Everything that does not come from faith is a sin, according to Paul in Romans, including our pursuit of pleasures. Ultimately, at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says this, the last and final word is this, fear God, do what he tells you to do. Do what he tells you. That is living by faith. Hearing God, doing what he tells you to do. So, how do we balance this? How do we balance the truth that God created pleasure, that living without faith in any form, but pursuing pleasure without faith is a sin? I believe that there's this truth that lasting pleasure requires sacrificial living. Lasting pleasure requires sacrificial living. If God doesn't stand in opposition to pleasure, even things we might call worldly pleasures, but rather created you for pleasure, how do you live by faith and enjoy what he created you for? I believe God made pleasure in order to draw you closer and closer to him. Let me say that again. I believe that God made pleasure in order to draw you closer to him. Psalm 1611 You make known to me the path of life. I love that phrase. You've made known to me the path of life. What is that path to life? In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. The greatest pleasure, the path to life, the fullness of joy is found where? It's found where? In his presence. In his presence, pleasure, goodness, happiness, meaning are all found in him. Not in the pleasures themselves, but in the one who created pleasure. They drive it. In other words, it's not food, sex, money. It's not that they don't bring us pleasure. They do. But rather that the greatest pleasure is found in God. His presence, his plan, his purpose. The only thing that can truly keep us from seeking pleasures that could destroy us is to truly aim for a higher pleasure. Let me see if I can articulate this, and I've tried to do it in the past. All of those things, food, sex, rock and roll, they all bring pleasure. The problem is when we let those pleasures drive us. How do we keep those pleasures in balance in a way that allows us to live a life that we believe God has called us to live? 
I believe it's by taking our eyes off the pleasures themselves and putting our eyes on him. What's going to keep me from living a life out of control? It's the truth that in his presence there's fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures evermore. Me telling you to stop sinning is going to be totally ineffective. Hello? I mean, I'm good at telling people to stop doing stuff. I mean, really, it's a gift of mine. Stop it. Just stop it. You got a problem? Stop it. Just stop it. Stop it. You ever see that Bob Newhart sketch where he's that psychologist? I got two words for you. Stop it or quit it. I can't remember how he words it. That's, all, that's his whole technique. It used to be my counseling technique too. Quit it. Pastor, I'm doing it. Well, quit it. Stop it. You know, it's totally ineffective. People don't stop. I mean, it's brilliant strategy. Just stop. Why is that? Because we find pleasure in that thing. Whatever it might be, at some level, we're finding pleasure. Pornography, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, we find pleasure in those things. What is going to make us stop doing them? It's not to tell you to stop doing them. It's just aim for a higher pleasure. This is a better one. This brings me more pleasure to be in his presence, to be with him. Here's one of the keys. I believe that God has created us for pleasure, but if we find our identity in that pleasure, whatever it might be, however good it might be, it becomes idolatry. We place something before God. Who are you? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a new creation in him. I mean, think about it. Sex is good. Marriage is good. Eating is good. Sleep is good. All of those things are good. But if I find my identity in that I am a husband, that's who I am. I'm a husband. Or I'm a father, or I'm a mother, or I'm a this, or a that, or whatever it might be, then we have placed something. We're giving room to something else in our lives to have control over us. This thing, being a father, it brings me pleasure. Having sex with my wife brings me pleasure. Eating food brings me pleasure. But if those things become my identity, then I've replaced God with something else. I know I keep repeating this, but this is really important for all of us. My identity must be in him. It must be in him. And for my identity to be in him, that means I have to live a life of sacrifice. In other words, I have to take up my cross daily and follow him. I mean, think about this. Whenever, just on the natural level, whenever you make a choice to go one direction, that means you're saying no to another direction. Hello? In other words, when I get married, I now live a life of sacrifice. What is the sacrifice? Well, the sacrifice is My body now belongs to the Lord and to my wife. It does not belong to any other woman I want to sleep with. I sacrifice that. You may, well, that's not a, for you that may not be a big sacrifice. Well, it's it's a life of sacrifice for all of us. We choose to live a life of sacrifice when we become parents. Now your time is not your own. Now there are different ways of thinking that you have to, you're living a life of sacrifice sacrifice. To put things in proper perspective, in proper order as followers of Jesus Christ is this. My identity is in him. The pleasures I receive must be 
subordinate to the greatest pleasure, which is being in his presence. If I'm single, then I don't just try and find a spouse in order to find meaning in life. Because my identity is not in finding a spouse. My identity is in him. If I'm single, it means I don't have sex with others just to fulfill that need, but rather I live a life of chastity, celibacy, until God brings someone in my life who I can be with, and so that relationship can be for his glory. If I'm a parent, then I live sacrificially. I love my children. I raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. If I have an attraction to someone of the same sex, then I live a life that recognizes his plan for sex and marriage and live to honor him. Our lives, when we come to know Jesus Christ, requires a life of sacrifice. Julie Rogers is a professor at Wheaton College. Julie identifies herself as one who has lived a life attracted to other women. But she's also a follower of Jesus Christ. And she has prayed that God would change her orientation, that she would find uh, attraction in men, but up until this point in her life, God has not done that. She also believes the Bible and that God has purposed for sex to be between a man and a woman within the context of marriage. Therefore, she has chosen to live a life of celibacy. She's chosen, saying, my attractions have not changed, but I understand this, living this life is not what God would have me to do, therefore I'm going to live a life of celibacy. She teaches at Wheaton College. She says this, I have chosen a life of sacrifice. What have you sacrificed for the gospel? Our paths of sacrifice may be different, but they all involve sacrifice. The way we live our life, her choice because of where she is, is a different kind of sacrifice. But all all of us are called to live lives of sacrificial living. I want to encourage you to find pleasure by giving your life away. I want it to be more than a catchphrase of a 16-year-old behind the counter at Chick-fil-A. That when you give your life away in sacrificial service to others, you can truly say, this is in God's plan and purpose for me. It's my pleasure. It brings me pleasure to serve. Begin to ask yourself how you can arrange your life in a way that serves and helps others who are not like you. I mean, generally, we tend to organize our lives in circles where everybody in our circle is like us. We've got a lot of people today here who are married. We've got some people here today, a lot of people who are single. We've got single moms. We've got single men, single women. We've got married couples. We've got widows, divorced. We have everybody across the board. I want to encourage you to give your life away. If you're 
If you're here and you're married and you're living in a family, then I would encourage you to find a, a person who, within the context of our church who's single that would like to be part of kind of, a, I hate to use the word intimacy because that may signal something to you that I'm not signaling, but in, you know, everybody's looking for meaning. Everybody's lonely. Everybody's looking for intimacy in some sense. Include them in your family. Bring them in. Don't just be a circle under yourself. Find others you can bless and minister to, give life to. They know they've got a place to go whenever they need a place. If you're single, find a way to give your life away. It's easy to kind of spiral into your loneliness and to think about yourself. Instead, I would encourage you to say, how can I invest in the young people of our church or the children or the adults or give my life away in some sort of service to his kingdom? The the point is this. All of us, lives require sacrifice. And if we're going to find pleasure, lasting pleasure, then we need to adopt a life of sacrificial living. Catholic theologian Peter Crift, in a book he entitled Three Philosophies of Life, it's a commentary on Ecclesiastes, he summarizes Ecclesiastes by saying this. The point is this. Without God, no, not just without God, for the writer of Ecclesiastes speaks frequently of God. Without faith in God, no, not even that, for the author has faith in God. In fact, unquestioning faith, never does he doubt God's existence. Rather, without the kind of faith in God that is larger than life and therefore worth dying for and therefore worth living for, without a lived love affair with God, life is vanity of vanities, the shadow of a shadow, a dream within a dream. The only way to live in true pleasure is to live a life lived according to grace and faith in Jesus Christ. Our greatest purpose is to love God, enjoy him forever. Then we need to walk the path of life. Being in his presence, discovering the fullness of joy. Understanding at his right hand there are pleasures evermore. When someone says to you, God made me this way. He wants me to pursue pleasure because he wants me to be happy. Encourage them to examine the truth that the greatest pleasure is found in God's presence. You're telling them, no, stop doing that, quit it, that behavior won't work, is not really going to do a lot of good. But if you can point them in faith to a higher calling in Jesus Christ, their lives can be changed forever. We're going to come to the table of the Lord. We're going to come to communion today. And really, one of the things, and there are many, many truths about taking communion, but one of the most important truths is we're, we're taking Christ's body, the bread. We're taking the cup, his blood. We're saying, thank you for forgiveness. I want to receive Christ, your life into me. What does the life of Christ in us look like? To me, it looks like a life lived out for his plan, his purposes, and it means sacrificial living.
taking up our cross daily and following him. When we come to this table, we're not saying, oh, God, I never want to experience pleasure for the rest of my life. No, we're saying, God, we want to put everything in submission and subjection to you. We want to follow you. We want to be a people after your name. We want to be the most celebrative, fun-filled, glory-given people on the planet so that people are drawn in love to the name of Christ. I want to encourage you to examine your life and to say, what have you sacrificed? What am I giving up for the gospel of Christ? What has God called me to give up for him and his glory? Stand up with me, if you would. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We glory in your name. And we pray this morning as we come to this table, we come to receive the cup, to receive the bread, that, God, you would work your sacrificial purposes out through our life today. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We we love you. Lord, help us each to examine What have we sacrificed for the gospel? Thank you, Jesus. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come. You're going to take the cup and the bread. You're going to go back to your place. And in your own timing, just take it before the Lord. And, And I'm asking you to, I'm encouraging you to take the moment 